Hello and welcome to The Jarek Show. I am Javad Malik in this week's action-packed episode, Foreign Exchange, a Twitter account hacked, and the California State Office Controllers Building or something like that. I don't know. I'm not American. And we have a very, very special guest. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss this one. Welcome to The Jarek Show, featuring your hosts, Javad Malik and Eric Krohn. Timely topics, poorly presented. Hello, hello. And alongside me, as always, is my co-host, Eric Krohn. How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing wonderful. You know, I had a spring break last week, so we kind of took a week off. But we are back here with renewed vigor, and we are ready to go. Excellent. And our special guest, uh, someone who I begrudgingly call a friend, <laughs> I've known him for, for about, uh, I don't know, 10 years or so. Uh, Kai, Kai Roa, um, how are you doing, sir? Well, you know, Javad, it's been a long decade knowing you, but now we reached, uh, you know, 2021. Uh, and uh, yeah, we are in separate countries. I, I think uh, it's a positive outlook to the future. Because you're in separate countries? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, the platonic drift may actually force these countries further away. At least that that's my hope. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So so actually, in, in 30 seconds, for, for, for the two people out there who don't know who you are, Kai, give us a quick introduction. Oh, you? No, you. Yeah, I don't know who you are. Can you please <laughs> tell us who you are, what you're doing on our show? <laughs> yeah. So, so um, for the past 15 years, I've been uh, messing around with, uh, you know, fluffy stuff like culture, uh, more specifically security culture. Um, and a decade ago, roughly the time you and I met first time, uh, I were one of probably a handful people, and I mean like a handful people, using the term security culture. Uh, three out of those five people were in Norway, actually. One of them were in uh, South Africa, and the fifth one, I don't know. Um, then um, today, you know, I run a research uh, unit out of Oslo where we focus on awareness, behaviors, and culture. And our mission is to, you know, pro pro provide this industry with facts so that we can remove all the opinions that I believe that we have been riddled with for the past, you know, 30, 40 years. So we've been riddled with opinions. Is that a fact or is that an opinion? Mm, it certainly is an opinion, uh, <laughs> but I have quite a few facts to, to back my opinion with. Excellent. That, those are the kinds of opinions we like. So um, speaking of opinions, Eric, you, you called out this story uh, Forex broker leads billions, leaks billions of customer records online. Uh, how did this happen? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. Um, this is a, uh, um, a a very busy um, online broker for foreign exchanges, right? And uh, some groups at a, re a review site called WizCase actually were, were doing some research and found a wide open Elasticsearch server, which, you know, Oh, that's not good. <laughs> Apparently, it was like 20 terabytes of data included in this Elasticsearch server. And, and I got to read this here real quick because um, I can't remember all the stuff that was here. Um, but let's see. 
16 billion records with millions of customers PII, including full names, email and billing addresses, phone numbers, IP addresses, passport numbers, social media IDs, ID verification scans, including national ID cards, driver's license, bank account statements, utility bills, and credit cards, along with unencrypted passwords here, which is another one. Um, I mean, there's just so much data here that got dumped by an accidental leaving Elasticsearch unsecured to the internet. Now, we don't necessarily know for sure, at least I don't know yet, um, if somebody has actually gone and grabbed that data other than the researcher saw it, but you never kind of know that. Uh, if they're really good, they cover their tracks, but this is a huge amount of data out there. What do you think, Javad? It is a huge amount of data, and this is something we, we see happen all too often. People leave these databases unsecured, and th this uh, I always find it interesting because it, it just goes to reinforce the fact that it's not a technological problem. The technologies are there. It's just a switch to turn something from a private to a public thing. So it's it's about having that awareness within the organization, or dare I say, uh, I have to pay royalties to Kai every time I use the word, but having a culture of security <laughs> where you actually do take into account that these things can go wrong. So, you know, how do you, what is your state that you want to achieve? How do you go about achieving that? And then how do you gain assurance that things are working as they should be? Yeah, and when you're dealing with this kind of data and this amount and it's connected to the internet, you need policies and procedures in place that are gonna have checks on this kind of stuff so it doesn't happen, even if it's a, a two-party check. I mean, that is significant enough amounts of data and information to have two people sign off on something when you're messing around like this out there. Yeah, yeah. Kai, do you, do you have anything to add to that one? So I sort of wish that I, you know, could grab some of that data because then there must be quite a lot of money hidden somewhere here. Uh, that joke aside, um, I, I think this is uh, more common than we, we like to think. Uh, this is a typical example of human uh, error. Uh, someone somewhere, in this case an engineer probably, making a simple mistake, something that in the flow of work is very easy to, to you know, over, uh, not discover or, or you, you just hit the wrong switch. Um, and, and that is something that is going to continue to happen. That's something that is part of human nature. We are going to keep making mistakes. Uh, and um, then to your point, Javad, that means that we really need to have in place what do you do when this happens? People need to know who they call, right? People need to know, oh my God, I made a mistake. Now we have, how many was it? 16 billion records out there. Um, what now, what now? Exactly, yeah, no, well, 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 well put. Huge, if true, as they say. Um, so, so here's another question. I'll put it to you, Kai, first. Say that you have a Twitter account with 97,000 followers. Uh, and for some reason, someone else got hold of it and they started tweeting out scams from it. So, you know, we, we often see Bitcoin scams, but say someone started doing the PlayStation 5 scam saying, hey, click here to win a PS5. And, you know, they're, this, uh, they're, they're doing that. Uh, and this is your account. And, and you have a big presentation the next day where you're going to be using Twitter to promote it and everything. And you're like pulling your hair out. Well, from eyebrows out maybe, uh, <laughs> trying to think of a way. And then someone DMs you saying, hey, we can give you back access to your Twitter account uh, for about $100 or something. 
Um, what do you do in that situation? Yeah, no, so, so my challenge is that I would never pay them a hundred buck, right? So, so, so I, I would then just, you know, accept the fact that I, I did something wrong, uh, which in the end resulted in someone else gaining access to, to my systems. Uh, but I would, I, I personally would never pay for that. Hmm. Um, that being said, you know, I have merely 3,700 or something followers, uh, not anywhere near a hundred K. Um, so I, I don't really think it's, it's, uh, someone's going to use my account to, you know, gen uh, generate a revenue stream for themselves. Um, but that being said, I, I, you know, I would never pay, but I do have two FA. Aha, uh -huh. yes. So plot twist, this is not a hypothetical scenario. This is precisely what happened to the head of the NHS um, in the UK, that our health service, the, the free health service, Eric, that we <laughs> that we have, not, not private. Ouch. But uh, she had actually two Twitter accounts combined, had uh, about 140,000 users. They, uh, they got compromised. And um, yeah, uh, so actually, it says that she mistakenly thought that she had enabled uh, 2FA because mm. she provided her phone number and she mm. thought, Oh, now I'm going to get texted every time I log on, but apparently not. So, there's something to be said for the uh, the, the design there, but um, but yeah, she did pay something like a hundred pounds. Uh, they sent her pictures or some files of. of, of something happening and uh, saying we're working on it um then they said we've got access back to your account but there's some snag so pay us some more money and then we'll get it to you at that at which point she thought mm, maybe this isn't the right place to to go um you know but she she then reported it to twitter through the official channels and after two days they were actually able to uh give her back access to to her account um and now she's enabled 2FA and now she's going around telling people, make sure you enable 2FA, don't re re reuse your passwords and don't pay scammers any money. And uh, I'm like, yeah, that it, this is good advice. I'm not saying it's bad advice, but I, I liken it to the story of the boy that looked at the sun through the telescope and got blinded. And now he's going around schools all around the world saying, don't look at the sun through a telescope, you might get blinded. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, this is a strange one because I think it's on, on one hand, it's everything that security people say, we, we, we like to say, I told you so, this is what you should do. Uh, and then on the other hand, you've got people that have been stung and they're going around saying, don't be like me. And then you've got other people that are just apathetic towards it all saying you're a sucker and you're too paranoid. Uh, what, what are your thoughts, Eric? You know, we, we keep seeing the power of social media out there, right? And we saw with the Twitter hack, all the stuff going on now, they only did like 110K on that whole Bitcoin scam sort of thing. Um, but the power of social media is significant. And I think a lot of organizations and individuals that are influencers undervalue that, right? Like we saw years ago with the uh, Associated Press when they had their account taken over uh, when Obama was in the White House here. And they ended up, um, they tweeted something like there was a bomb that went off in the in the White House and the stock market like boom right at that time, right? Uh, there's a lot of power in social media. And we saw that here um, in Tampa, in Tampa, Florida, where the mayor's account was taken over and like two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, they were tweeting out some really bad like pedophilia type stuff and all this like really bad stuff when the account got taken over. 
And so again, no, no 2FA and not the 2FA or MFA is, is completely foolproof, but at least it's helpful. Okay. It, it, it adds that extra piece of help. We have to be sure that we don't, that we don't teach people that that is the cure and then that's going to fix everything, but that it is helpful. Right. So we have to be careful with that. And I got to be honest with you. I was thinking about it as you were asking Kai this, um, if I'm going to ba- about to do this big thing, um, where she needed the account to be able to put out this, uh, you know, the promos and stuff like that. I might've paid the hundred dollars with low expectations and just said, Hey, who knows? Maybe these folks are out for something. Who knows? You know, uh, that's a hundred bucks. That's kind of like, you know, uh, when it's, when you're talking about something at this scale, that's really not a whole lot of money. So I would have really considered it, but not had high hopes about it in the long run. Right. Um, so when they came back for more, that would have been a quick walk. But if you think about it, that's a brilliant thing. If you hear about an account that's been taken over, you hit them up and you go, I can get that back for you for a hundred bucks or 50 bucks or whatever. And then, you know, you just walk away and you have nothing to do with it. That's another brilliant scam. I like it. So, so Kai, you agree with me that Eric just said he would happily fund terrorism. <laughs> well, Something he would fund definitively. I didn't yeah. say happily, and and, and um, but so 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 so, so, so I, I actually want to bring this back to something you said, Javad, of of uh, people sharing these stories and 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 that these things happens. Uh, I believe it is very important that we have people like whatever her name is sharing when these things happens, uh, because uh, if we don't, we end up thinking that oh. I was the only stupid person here falling for this scam. Um, but by people like her standing uh, up for this, I realized that, oh, I am not alone. Maybe this problem is bigger than just me being stupid. Maybe I'm not stupid at all. Maybe just there's something else out there. Uh, so so I, I am actually very happy to see these kind of, of uh, posts out there. Um, I reading this particular one, I would like maybe oversharing a little bit, but then again, it helps relate the content and, and the issue here with the target audience. That's a great point, Kai, because like in um, in romance scams where we see that, where people are afraid to come out because they feel so foolish for falling for this thing. And they're well-crafted. These folks, they have their stuff together, right? But they feel so foolish having fallen for that after the fact, when the emotions burn off and they realize what's happened. But then when one person comes back and says, you know what, I fell for this thing, then other people start going, uh, yeah, I kind of fell for one of those two myself. And then it starts to kind of snowball. You see that in real life when that kind of stuff happens. And uh, it, it's it's unfortunate, but it's good for them to be the ones to stand up and say, hey, you're not alone in this and to help people understand that. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot to be said about removing the stigma uh, of, of this. And, and this actually ties nicely into the next story that that, that I had and I read of it. Uh, uh, Fish leads to breach at California State Controller's uh, office um, and basically a user there was sent a phishing email. They clicked on the link and it would well, it look like their Office 365 authenticate your, your domain again or something. So they clicked on it. It got taken to one of those spoof pages which said, enter your ID and password. They entered that and that those credentials went to a uh, criminal who then logged onto that user's account and uh, stole data that they had access to and used it to send out phishing emails. So I think technically it's correct that the fish led to the breach. But personally, I also feel like this kind of like 
makes a scapegoat out of that one employee uh, and security. And, you know, the human layer is just one layer within uh, the, your, your security model. And, you know, maybe if they had multi-factor authentication in place, uh, that would have stopped it. Maybe if they had better gateway controls in place or DMARC in place or something. I, I, I don't know the exact technicalities, but there, there were a number of things. Or maybe if when someone logged on to uh, a concurrent session came on to that email address and it was not even in the building or maybe not even in the country, then that should have set off some, some alarm. So uh, I think it's an interesting story, but I, I, I also found it interesting in how we, we frame these stories and how we, you know, it, it's almost as if uh, it, it implies that, well, a user made an error, users are stupid, there's nothing more we could have done and try to like move on. And, and that, that kind of like, it got it just got me thinking and I thought we, we've got like, you know, yeah, well, you, Eric, but also we've got Mr. Culture on here to, to, who maybe understands the human psychology a bit better than, than I do. Yeah, you know, I would say that it, this is one of those cases where, you know, we see it all the time in, in, in our industry and what we do. Um, there's a difference between saying that the human is the problem and blaming the human. Okay. Um, humans are a problem because they're targeted and they do fall for these things. But to blame the individual human on that, I think um, sometimes is short-sighted because frankly, again, these attackers are really good at their tradecraft. They've got to perfect it. They know what they're doing. They know how to anticipate when people push back with questions. This is not your run of the mill, just some kid throwing this stuff out there, right? It is serious stuff that's going on. And so to acknowledge that humans are where things tend to go wrong is different than blaming that human. And we got to get past that. We've got to understand why this kind of stuff happens. And we've got to then embrace it in such a way that we don't make the person feel like they're always at fault and make them feel bad. You know, we go and we say, okay, you messed up. Let's make sure this doesn't happen again or take that approach a little bit more than saying, why the hell did you do that? Right. And we see that too often. I, I think you have a very good point there, Erich. And um, so, 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 so one of the things that I believe is very important when it comes to people is to realize that we make mistakes. It's how we are made. Um, and, and making mistakes is actually very valuable for people uh, or, or for humankind, if you like. Um, so, so, so accepting that, almost embracing that fact uh, is important also from a security perspective, uh, but not to point fingers at someone specific because, yeah, you fucked up today and you may have to beep that. Um, but um, it, it, it's going to happen. But we can do something to reduce the probability of that happening by giving you good trainings. Uh, by doing uh, assessments, for example, which will feed into the training platform to help you understand what kind of stuff triggers you to do these things that you shouldn't be doing. Wise words, wise words. So that, that was the, the, the new section. And uh, thank you for participating in that, Kai. Uh, before Eric tells me off, I have to remind all of our viewers and listeners, you can listen to our podcast, thejerickshow.podbean.com or find us on YouTube and also follow Kai on Twitter as Kai Roa. Um, don't ask, it's spelled how it's pronounced. Anyway, uh, 
On to the bit where, which uh, I, I've definitely been looking forward to for a long, long time. So, Kai, we like, like we alluded to in the beginning, we uh, you have been working on culture for probably one of, for one of the longest periods of time in the industry for for security culture that is, and you built up your your own company in uh, Oslo called Culture, and you've done some fantastic research there. Then about just coming up two years ago, you were acquired by No Before, uh, and uh, now you're officially the uh, No Before. Uh, Oslo is the No Before Research headquarters, uh, and you head that up. Um, just talk us through some of that journey and and what was that like? Um, so, so like Stu said in um, um, in one of his um, presentations. Building a company is hard work, and it's no vacation, right? It, it's what you do for that period is that you build that company. Um, the good thing for me when I started to culture, uh, which was uh, used to be the name of the company uh, in Oslo in 2015, is that it was my fourth company that that I, I established and, and and did something with, which made me know what I was going to in the sense that it is going to be five to ten years of hard work and nothing else. Um, but the, the the main focus when we started this company was to figure out how can we measure security culture. And not just from an academic perspective in the sense that we put a few people or one organization uh, into a university and ask them a trillion questions and, and then say something. Uh, what we wanted to achieve was to create a repeatable process where we can measure the same thing again and again across industries, across companies, across um, uh, countries and, and, and around the world. And to do that, we knew that we needed to do some science. So I teamed up with uh, Dr. Gregor Petrich out of the uh, University of Ljubljana. And for you, Erich, that is in Europe, Southern Europe. Um, and, and he is a professor at the, um, um, so, so he heads their Institute of Socioinformatics. And socioinformatics is very, very fascinating. It's the social part is the people, so, so culture, psychology, sociology, those things. And informatics is computers, right? Uh, and and uh, a, uh, an institute for socioinformatics, what they study is how people influence technology and how technology influence people. So when I met him back in the day, I knew it was a perfect match. And then the guy is one of the brightest minds I ever met. Uh, and he's fun to be with. And, you know, he likes cooking and food and all that stuff that I love. So, so, so see, it, it was like a match in heaven. Um, and, and then you, you, I, I told him that, you know, I have a sec security background. And I want to figure out how can we measure security culture. And he was like, well, you know, Kai, well, no one done it before. Um, how do we define culture? Because we need to know how we define security culture before we can measure it. And I'm like, oh, I got that one. You see, in the security culture framework, which I just developed back in 2011-12, we define security culture as the uh, ideas, the customs, and the social behavior of an organization that influenced that organization's security. Fine, I thought. 
And then he's like, well, you know, Kai, maybe from, you know, a practitioner perspective, you can use that definition, but from a scientific perspective, it's not good enough. Uh, and I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. well, I come to you as a scientist, so please then help me come up with something better. Um, and together we spent some time, um, or I like to say together, he did most of the grunt work here. Um, so, so he reviewed all the, the um, available literature and came up with uh, seven specific areas within cultural um, uh, literature that we believe is tightly connected to security. And those uh, items or dimensions that we call them today uh, are attitudes, behaviors, uh, cognition, so that's where awareness goes, communication, compliance, norms, and responsibilities. And of course, if you want to know more about those specifics, go to our website and download all the available <laughs> research that we have because it is out there because we want to share this. We want people to understand and know these things. So Kai, I have a question for you here, and it's something that um, that my experience has shown me the difference of, but I think uh, some people get confused on the difference between like informing people and building a culture because you know, you don't necessarily build a culture just by putting someone in training all the time. You can train them every day of the week, you know, five days a week, et cetera, et cetera. And they may be well-educated, but it doesn't necessarily influence the culture. So can you help explain the difference between those? Yeah, I'm sure I can. Um, but but the, the quick answer, the short answer is that information is something that may come in here uh, and yeah, I may be informed, but I may not change my behavior, for example. So the ultimate outcome of what we try to do is to change the behavior and primarily the social behavior of a group. Um, one example that I used to do when I traveled the world, uh, so basically on that stage somewhere, uh, was awareness, right? So, so awareness is from a psychological perspective, it means that you are aware, you, you know of something, right? Uh, the problem with me being aware is that I may not actually change something based on that knowledge. The example I used to do was uh, I have reached a certain age, the best time of my life, obviously, uh, where um, a number of people, including colleagues, friends, or maybe no longer friends, uh, wife, she's still my wife, and my doctor, still the same guy, uh, are like, you know, Kai, mm, maybe it is time for you to get out of the couch and, you know, out on the street running around or, you know, do something with your beer belly and, and those things. And I'm like, that's awareness for you, right? <laughs> so, or in your case, Eric, that, that that's information. Yes, they keep telling me. That yes, they keep asking me. And yes, I keep saying, mm -hmm, I know that. Yes, you're right. right. I even give them that right because they are. But does it make me go out there and run? Yeah, it's got to be something kind of that that's relevant to you and meaningful to you, right? Like if you were to have a heart attack, you might go, huh, maybe I should get off the couch and do what they said, right? I mean, we see that a lot with people that have something like that happen and they go, you know, I've known about this for years. Now I'm going to go take care of it, right? Uh, and so, yeah, they've been aware of it, but it hasn't really meant anything to them to make that actual fundamental change. 
So, so the challenge there, you being American, uh, you will rely on anecdotal proof, right? That, that that's a very large part of, of the communication culture of of, um, of uh, the USA. Uh, any kind of book you will read, uh, there will be some facts and a lot of anecdotes. Hmm? Uh, I'm European, so I'm the uh, opposite. I prefer the facts, and then you can keep your anecdotes, right? Um, um, uh, but, but that's a cultural difference. The reason I bring it up, though, is your example of heart attack, and, and we know that people change their behavior. Yeah, we know that some people change their behavior, right? But we don't know if everyone does. Yeah. Or if someone probably do have statistics on that, but I don't. Um, and, and, and that's part of so, so what i'm doing now is building a bridge back to what i started this conversation with uh, part of my mission and no before research mission is to take away opinions or anecdotal proof if you like and bring facts to the table um and yeah i, I agree with you that that your uh, your example is probably a very good example but i'd like to see that the majority of those people actually change their behavior but i don't believe they do so so when you look at changing behaviors in an organization are you focused on changing every individual's behaviors or are you looking to shift the mass the masses in in a certain way at, at one time because i think those are two different things like again if we if we use eric's poor example of heart attacks um are, are you trying to get each individual to change their behaviors before they have a heart attack or are you just trying to say okay if we can get 80 percent, 90 percent of people to change their behaviors then then that's good enough uh, how do you so, so I, I think that there, there are two different cases there right you have that time of crisis so that heart attack, and, and, and if you take that heart attack and move it over to an organization, we don't mean that Eric get a heart attack, we mean the organization get the equivalent of a heart attack. So for example, a ransomware shutting down everything that we've seen uh, in a number of companies, right? Or, or any kind of, of important uh, event, uh, that can be a heart attack. And heart attacks can be a very effective um, trigger to move people in the right direction if you facilitate it in a good way or go out there and start running, right? <laughs> um, but for most of us, luckily, still in 2021, uh, it is not about uh, waiting for that event to happen because not every organization get these kind of events, at least not every year. So, so for most of it, is, it becomes a question of what can I do today to change just a little bit? So one small step today, and then one small step tomorrow, and then another step the day after tomorrow. Then you get the compound interest uh, effect here, right? Um, and, and by doing that, you can make huge change with very little effort, but over the course of time. Yeah. So let me ask you, uh, Kai, with respect to changing culture within organizations, um, and I, I think I know the answer to this, but how critical or how important is it to have the top leadership demonstrating whatever that is going to be, as opposed to trying to do it from, say, you know, at the mid-manager mid level, et cetera, et cetera? How, how important is that top end demonstrating uh, in the culture shift? 
So, so, so let me hear, hear your own answer to this, please. Yeah, I, I think it's incredibly important that that the top leadership demonstrates what they're saying, not just say it, but actually demonstrate what they're saying. And people will see that and they feel empowered and comfortable about doing that. And they feel compelled to do what the other person has demonstrated. That's my thoughts on it. Mm -hmm. And and it looks like, so, so the evidence looks like you are actually right. Uh, we are still digging deeper into it to see if it's not just a fluke. Uh, but uh, the evidence strongly suggests that uh, management buy-in and, you know, that that executive team not only saying to the CISO, yeah, yeah, go ahead, yeah, yeah, you get the money and do this, but them actually taking uh, active uh, role uh, is uh, very important. Uh, but I, I will not conclude yet until I have the, the, the report done. But, but so far, it looks like you're right. You know, it reminds me of this, society, uh, this study I, I read. Uh, and it was about societies and laws in societies and, and everything. I, I can't remember. It was a long time ago, so I won't be able to find the... the, the maybe you've heard of it. But uh, they're talking about how structures in society stop people from doing bad things, for, for example. So... So um, uh, it, it spoke, speaks about four 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 layers, I think. It, it, or, or, so it's basically if if someone wanted to steal, the first layer is their own uh, self. So they've been informed of stuff, and maybe their behavior has been changed based on understanding or morality or, or whatever you want to call it. So that's layer one. Um, if that doesn't work, then they have maybe a family around them, family support system. What will my wife say? What will my kids say if I go and steal something? My parents will be disappointed in me, all that kind of thing. Uh, then, then the third layer is like your um, your uh, policing and uh, justice system, basically. That that is it. I can't remember if there was a fourth layer or, or whether I'm mixing one of the layers up. But it, it basically said that there's like three or four layers, and and um, you know that that help about um, keep people adopting these behaviors because naturally people are going to even if they sometimes agree with something they want to sometimes deviate and uh, i i just bring uh, remember that and i bring that up because i think it's it ties into what you're saying eric about starting at the top i think there, there's a need for people to be at the top but i think there's a there's a societal element and then there's a personal element to it as well there's like several rings that reinforce each other uh when, when it comes to changing behaviors for the better so if, if you are, let's say, a middle manager or something, Kai, and you don't necessarily have that um, top level um, support or, or they're not demonstrating it, um, what are some tips and tricks for people in that area that they can maybe try to help um, generate a little bit more of a culture change? Is there something that they can do uh, without that top end support to, to hopefully help? Because I think there's a lot of people that are in that in that spot, at least right now. So sh sh there are plenty of things you can do, uh, regardless of your position in an organization. But as a mid-level manager, um, encourage your team, your group, to do the right stuff. Uh, and uh, normally the right stuff would be the policing, as, as Javed points to, right? So, so, so look through the policies and the routines and the tools in your toolbox and make sure your team, your group, your employees are familiar with it and follow them to, to uh, as much as possible, right? 
the other thing you can do as a manager is to bring this upwards, right? So, so uh, take it sideways to your uh, to your peers and discuss these topics with them and raise the topics upwards. Uh, and of course, support your CISO or whoever is in charge of doing things whenever they have an idea, uh, instead of shooting it down right away, try to consider what are they actually trying to achieve here and how can me in my job help them and then ultimately our organization uh, improve. Cool. So I want to turn, turn things around a bit. And you started off by saying how you and Gregory, Dr. Greg, uh, started off and you were the security person, he was the um, uh, he was the science science, science person. Uh, working on culture for all these years, and granted you're working on security culture, do you would you still identify as a security person or are you more of a organizational um, sociologist or, or something like that? Do you, do, do you still say that you work in the security industry, the cybersecurity industry or, or not? So, so of course I work in the cybersecurity industry. Uh, I usually um, still use the term information security, uh, but as all of us know, cyber is the main uh, transportation um, layer there. Uh, but, but yes, I am a security person. Um, usually, will uh, if you ask me to introduce myself at, at some event, for example, I will give you three things that I that, that I do and that I've done throughout my uh, career. Uh, it's leadership, so building and managing teams and organizations. I've been doing that since before I ended the, the, or um, uh, went to university. Uh, communication, because communication is the key to get your message, your ideas out there, but also to digest and get their ideas back in. So communication is really important. And the third one is technology. Um, throughout my career, uh, since I was a teenager, actually, in, in the 80s, I've been playing with computers, uh, modems, BBSs, stuff like that. Um, and, and then um, roughly 2005, I think it was, I realized that, oh, yeah, you do technology and it's internet, but that is actually a, a large part of what you do is securing these uh, web servers, for example, or, or things like that. Um, so, 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 so yes, security, yes, communication, and yes, leadership. Cool, cool, very good, very good. So um, one of the, 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 the reasons for asking that is slightly loaded, uh, is that, um, There are people that look to get into the industry and uh, the security industry, information, IT, cyber, whatever uh, we, we want to call it. And sometimes they're told, oh, you need to understand, you know, pen testing or networking or sometimes, you know, you have background in this. Um, how, I mean, what you do is a valuable part of security and um, you don't need necessarily a heavy technical background in some of these traditional uh, IT security fields. You don't need to be a forensics expert to do what you do, but what you do need is a is a good background in, in or, or understanding communications and leadership and, and scientific uh, knowledge and or, or, or principles. Um, what is your recommendation to people looking to break into the field, maybe to work on the 
culture side or the communication side or changing behavior side? Is, is there any tips you can give to people who, who want to go down that route? Yeah, my, my first tip is always do not listen to the um, tech bros who tell you that you need to have a technical background and uh, blah, blah, this and blah, blah, that, because that's bullshit. What you need is a mind for security. And security is about the principles of security, not the technology. But you can learn technology. That, that's easy, right? Even if it's hard, it's easy. Uh, the, the difficult part of security, in my opinion, is to understand what security actually is. And, and there are so many different abstraction levels that, that, that starts playing. So, for example, uh, on the technical side, yeah, it's a firewall or, or as you point to pen testing or, or something like that. But what about business side of things? Right. So, so, so when do these technical controls play a part in business? Or more importantly, for the technical security people out there, yes, I'm pointing at you, uh, how do that business control what you are allowed to do? And what is your job? It is to secure that organization, not to uh, you know, have the geekiest or latest or newest or coolest, whatever. It is to make sure that your organization survive another day. And yeah, sometimes you do need some technical background, but there are many other uh, relevant uh, knowledge areas. For example, risk management, communication. Yeah, that is crucial. Um, uh, understanding of how people actually influence security. And did I say communication? Um, and and of course, technology. You can learn it. So, so that that that. Yeah, if you are interested, dig into computers. If not, there are so many other things. Cool. Wise words from a wise man. Uh, hurt me to say that. Thank you, compliment. But <laughs> I think you earned it. Coming from you, Javed, I, I'll take it. Thank you. No, no, no. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been an, uh, an awesome friend and uh dare i say in, in some regards a mentor as well i've learned so much from you over the years and glad that we're working together and we have to set up these things even just to get some face time i suppose that's how busy you are uh eric anything you want to uh summarize? yeah you know i had an epiphany moment it was really important and, and we should take away from this um this one key fact well eric just has a habit of going on and on so, um, you know, we, we don't really care about what he has to say. Kai, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, any final words? No, he doesn't. So thank you very much, everyone, for being here today. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and honor. As always, I'm Javad Malik. This is The Jerick Show.